Hello, and welcome to another edition of ABI Podcast. My name is John Hartgen, ABI's Public Affairs Officer. As legislative measures since March 2020 have been aimed at providing economic stability to meet the challenge of financial distress caused by the COVID-19 pandemic, December saw a flurry of activity that resulted in the Combined Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2021. The $2.3 trillion spending bill combined $900 billion in stimulus relief for the COVID-19 pandemic with a $1.4 trillion omnibus spending bill for the 2021 federal fiscal year. The bill passed both chambers of Congress on December 21 and was signed into law by the president on December 27th. Within the nearly 5,600 pages of this bill were important changes to the bankruptcy code. A previous ABI podcast highlighted changes made to business bankruptcy law by the act. So now we have assembled three experts to help you unpack some of the key provisions related to consumer bankruptcy law. They have spoken and written on key consumer bankruptcy issues and have followed the developments of the COVID-19 stimulus legislation over the past year and closely followed the developments in December. Guests on today's podcast include John Rayo, an attorney with the National Consumer Law Center, and Carissa Potts, a principal attorney at Freedom Law PC. Your host for today's discussion is ABI Consumer Committee co-chair, Christopher Hawkins, a partner at Bradley Arendt Bolt Cummings LLP. And now I'd like to turn the discussion over to Chris Hawkins. Go ahead, Chris. Thanks, John. Um, as John mentioned, um, in recognition of and in response to the devastating economic effects of the coronavirus, uh, the federal government in March 2020 enacted the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act, also known as the CARES Act. Uh, this legislation contains several temporary structural changes to the bankruptcy code uh, that were an attempt to account for the impact of the virus. Among them was the exclusion of any um, federal coronavirus relief payments from a debtor's current monthly income under the bankruptcy code. The CARES Act also permitted debtors to amend their confirmed Chapter 13 plans based on coronavirus-related financial hardships including an extension of the plan term from five to seven years. Now, each of these provisions had a one-year sunset, meaning these temporary structural changes to the code uh, would go away in March of 2021. Uh, one aspect of the CARES Act that didn't include any bankruptcy guidance related to mortgage forbearances, which under the CARES Act would be required upon the debtor's request on any federally backed mortgage loan. This led to a significant amount of confusion and district-driven workarounds as to how such forbearance agreements would be disclosed to the court and implemented by counsel and the trustees. In other words, there's no doubt that the CARES Act was well-intentioned and provided a temporary framework for meaningful relief and bankruptcy, but it left some gaps that had to be filled by courts and practitioners. Uh, with the Con Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2021, the federal government attempted to fill in some of these gaps with respect to consumer bankruptcy. I think John Carissa and I can all agree that the act reflects admirable uh, intentions 
and provides additional relief and guidance. But the language of the act regarding bankruptcy lacks the precision necessary to seamlessly implement its provisions. So our goal is to dig into these provisions of the act and discuss their merits, as well as the practical challenges in giving these provisions their full effect in bankruptcy. So with that, let's start the conversation. Uh, John, can you tell us a little bit about section 1001A, which regards property of the estate and how that dovetails with the exclusion from income that was originally in the CARES Act? Yeah, thanks, Chris. So there are two provisions uh, that uh, apply to the stimulus payments, one that, as Chris mentioned, was in the CARES Act and another one that's in this more recent uh, Consolidated Appropriation Act. The one that's in uh, Section 1001A amends Section 541 of the code and says that these stimulus payments are not property estate. So this, and, and what it refers to is recovery rebates. Um, and these are uh, the, the stimulus payments that are in, in the form of an advanced tax refund. So the $600 up to 600 or up to 1200 for a couple that were received under the, uh, the, the uh, CAA, uh, those will not be treated as property estate, meaning that this is, this is especially helpful in states that have opted out of the federal bankruptcy exemptions and the debtor doesn't have use of a wild card exemption that might cover it. This is very helpful uh, for debtors in those uh, states. Um, and that the other, the other thing to keep in mind is that that's uh, a provision that will, will sunset on December 27th, but the way it's worded, as long as it's a recovery rebate under this section of the the tax code that is referenced in the statute. That's all it says. So that if Congress were to, uh, um, in the most, the, the bill that's under consideration right now, the stimulus package that Congress is considering right now, if they were to uh, uh, adopt another round of stimulus payments, this provision, in my view, will protect those payments and make them not property estate as well. Um, we also had, as Chris mentioned, in the CARES Act, there was a provision that said that these similar stimulus payments, actually it was much broader in the CARES Act, and it said that they were not current monthly income, so they wouldn't affect the debtor in the, in the means test in a Chapter 7, and that they would also be not disposable income, so they wouldn't be treated as, uh, uh, you know, what would be required to make payments to unsecured creditors in a Chapter 13. Now, that provision expires on March 27th. But what also is good about that provision is it's broadly drafted to refer to payments made under federal law, basically relating to the pandemic, the national emergency. So once again, anything that's adopted into the future, at least until that expires on March 27th, and maybe potentially it might be extended by a new act. But if, if that is extended, that will also cover, in my view, uh, not just stimulus payments, but it also covers uh, enhanced unemployment benefits, anything else that Congress chooses to do uh, that is pandemic related payment or benefit. Chris? Good, good. Uh, thanks, John. Uh, now let's talk a little bit about this notion of what, be cons uh, what might be considered an expanded hardship discharge under the act. Um, John, do you think that's what was intended by Section 1001B? Well, I don't think it was intended to be as broad as perhaps the language suggests. 
Uh, it is, a, in my view, an oddly drafted language that really is going to result in, um, you know, I think a fair amount of different judicial opinions about what it, what it means and how it should be applied. Um, what it does is it, it, it amends Section 1328 um, by permitting a new uh, subsection that allows the debtor to receive a discharge if certain conditions are met. The first part of it is that the debtor has to have a plan that's proposing to cure or make payments uh, on, on a residential mortgage under 1322b5. So that, that has to be in there. And then it says that there are two conditions that could be met that would trigger this right to a discharge, either that the debtor, the debtor has missed three or fewer mortgage payments um, because of a COVID-19 related hardship, or the debtor has entered into a forbearance or mo loan modification. Um, and what this, what I think it was trying to do was there are certainly courts which have interpreted uh, the code to say that the debtor, if the debtor fails to make mortgage payments, they may be making all of their plan payments other, other than uh, particularly in where they're in, in, in non-conduit jurisdictions where they disperse, they make their own payments directly to a mortgage lender. There's case law that says that if the debtor hasn't been making those payments, but is otherwise kept up with other plan payments, that they would be denied a discharge because those are payments under the plan. And I think Congress was trying to say here, with that case law in mind, that if the debtor misses three or few pay mortgage payments, they can still get a discharge. But here's the problem: the problem is that the way it, the statute begins with some language, which I'll just quickly read. It says, "To a debtor who has not completed payments to the trustee or a creditor holding a security interest in the principal residence." So by referring to trustee there, what I think they were trying to say is this, you know, it doesn't matter whether it's conduit or non-conduit. I think that's what Congress intended, but the language is just payments to the trustee. So arguably what this could mean is that the debtor gets a form of hardship discharge um, uh, as long as they have, if they haven't made payments to the trustee, it doesn't say, the statute doesn't say when the debtor can do this. It, 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 arguably, it could be done pretty much at any point. Um, and it could mean that the debtor could get a discharge even if they have not kept up with other non-mortgage plan payments. Um, and they even if the disposable income test and best interest of creditors tests have not been met. Now, that's the most extreme uh, view. I, I really think it was probably much more intended just to deal with the situation where the debtors has been making their regular plan payments, the trust, the payments other than the mortgage have been completely satisfied and the debtor has fallen behind on three or fewer mortgage payments. Probably the most significant one though is it refers to a forbearance or modification. And this is where I think it really can be helpful because the debtor could have gotten a CARES Act forbearance and a lot of debtors in chapter 13 could, could get them. Um, and those forbearances now are going as long as a year or more. Um, and so the debtor could be in a 13, they're making their plan payments, they've satisfied everything that they were required to do, but they're in a forbearance. 
uh, and they haven't made a mortgage payment basically in a year. This would allow them to still get a discharge. And I think that is important. I think that is probably what Congress intended and it, 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 it potentially will provide a benefit to debtors. Carissa, what, what would be your take from a practical uh, uh, perspective? Well, I agree with uh, John. I do think that the uh, intent here is to allow debtors to get a discharge and a fresh start in a Chapter 13 case if they fell behind on their residential mortgage obligations due to a COVID-19 related material hardship. And that it is in, the intention was to address the holdings in cases like Henry Heinzel uh, out of the Western District of Texas. Um, and the holding in Heinzel was whether you know, a post-petition mortgage payment is a payment under the plan and whether delinquent mortgage payments are a material default under the plan and preclude a discharge. And so I think, uh, although it is perhaps a provision that could have been drafted better, uh, uh, the reading of the provision seems clear to me that that was the intent. And I think it is important to note as well that the court does have discretion in granting a discharge pursuant to this provision. And there must be a notice and a hearing, and then the court may grant a discharge. And I think that that is going to be an important aspect. Uh, and I do think that that will protect uh, perhaps some of the worst case scenarios that we're envisioning here is I think that the court does have discretion. And I think this is gonna be a really good option for cases where uh, the debtor is in that forbearance and otherwise has completed all the provisions of the plan um, and uh, is just currently in a forbearance, but otherwise, otherwise qualifies for that discharge. Um, and the practitioner just needs to be aware that if the debtor is not in a forbearance, uh, the debtor is, can't be too behind on the payments. Um, and that's something that the you know, practitioner needs to be very careful about analyzing these types of cases uh, to make sure that uh, the debtor is taking advantage of all the, the remedies available. Um, and it is important to remember too that after discharge, the creditors will still be entitled to post-discharge state law remedies. Um, and so I think servicers are going to need to ensure that accounting is done very carefully um, and that defaults are properly and accurately documented to avoid discharge injunction violations. So I do think that this is, um, that there's some trepidation here um, and I think that there's some risk that uh, the servicers will face, uh, but I do think overall, this could be something that's very beneficial uh, for, for debtors. Yeah, and, and a lot of my work is working with servicers, financial institutions, um, and helping them you know, design and implement their bankruptcy processes. And my early advice to them with respect to the act was, keep a very close eye, you know, on what's filed and what relief is being asked for, um, just because there is a little bit of a lack of precision in the, in the act itself. So let's make sure that if that is really what was intended, that that's what the order reflects uh, when the bankruptcy court has its hearing. 
So I think this is one where the where practitioners and the courts and trustees are going to probably have to fill in a little bit of the gaps to make sure it's implemented in the way that we think it was intended to be implemented. Um, so let's move on to another uh, section of the act. Uh, Carissa, section 1001C maybe is a little bit uh, less controversial. Maybe it was designed a little bit more for the business uh, on the business side, but I think it has applicability on the consumer side as well. So what do you think uh, the impact of 1001C will be on section 525? Well, I think it's fairly limited, as you stated. Uh, I do think that the, the greatest impact on the consumer uh, is going to be that there is a prohibition against discriminatory treatment based on a current or prior bankruptcy. And this individual debtor uh, cannot be denied CARES Act relief, specifically foreclosure uh, moratorium, forbearance, and eviction moratorium. Um, and so, you know, I think that the, the, the biggest impact is the uh, debtor can't be denied a forbearance because they are or were in a bankruptcy. Um, and I have, in my personal practice, I, I've only really had this come up once where I had a client who um, indicated that they requested a forbearance and they were denied it initially because of the bankruptcy. Um, and then one of my staff attorneys called and yelled at the mortgage company and then we were able to get it. Um, but I think this is explicit. I think it makes it clear for the mortgage servicers that, uh, that people in bankruptcy can get these forbearances. And I think this is, you know, I, I think generally this has been done for consumers, but I think it makes it explicitly clear now for servicers. Yeah, I mean, there has definitely been a trend, um, kind of the intersection of, you know, RESPA and Regulation X uh, related to loss mitigation assistance um, and, uh, and bankruptcy. The trend has definitely been to offer you know, loss mitigation assistance in all of its forms to, to borrowers that uh, have either, you know, received a discharge or are currently in bankruptcy. But I think you're right, it gives um, a little bit more uh, heft to it to have it included in the, in the act itself. I will say the one thing that bothers me, though, is if the mortgage servicer does discriminate based on a bankruptcy filing, there's no remedy for the debtor. So I... I'm a little, I mean, you know, maybe hopefully it just doesn't happen, but uh, it doesn't, I wonder what the recourse is. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it from a procedural standpoint, and I don't know whether it's contempt or, or not, <laughs> um, but, you know, the advice to the servicers would be, let's let's not discriminate based on bankruptcy and, and, uh, and get to the point where we have to figure out the procedure on it. All right, so when the CARES Act became law, one of the trickiest issues uh, by far related to the mechanics of implementing the forbearance requirements and bankruptcy, uh, at least from my practice perspective. Uh, with the act, it appears that Congress tried to tighten up the process, but I'm still not sure we're there. So Carissa, what are your thoughts on implementing section 1001D? Well, uh, this is, I think it's just such an interesting uh, provision and in my opinion leaves the most open to how does this all work um, and with mortgage servicer claims generally uh, my office goes over them with a fine-tooth comb and there's uh, mortgage servicers have such a complicated task to be compliant in bankruptcy and this I think adds another layer of uh, 
obligation and, or, or does it and, and questions about what mortgage servicers should be doing to protect their own rights. Um, because I can see as debtors counsel, there's a lot here um, that I could do with it on the other side because of the ambiguity with which it is written. But section 101D allows mortgage servicers to file a supplemental proof of claim for payments that are forborn, deferred, or otherwise modified under the CARES Act. And uh, notably, this only applies to federally backed mortgages. The supplemental claim must include a description of the forbearance agreement or loan modification and a copy of the forbearance agreement or loan modification. And it must be filed no later than 120 days after the forbearance period. Uh, and so there, it does also seem that filing of the supplemental proof of claim is optional by the mortgage servicer. Uh, and so I think this gives the mortgage servicer lots of practical considerations here. Um, internal processes would have to be reviewed to ensure the timeliness and the accuracy of these supplemental claims, as well as attaching the proper documentation. Um, as debtors counsel, um, I'm already gonna look for opportunities here to object to those supplemental claims based on timeliness or perhaps failure to attach the proper documentation. And then would the claim be barred? Would the amounts owed be unrecoverable? I don't know the answer to these questions. Um, I believe that it leaves open a lot of questions just unanswered. Does um, another open question is, can a CARES claim be filed for a non-federally backed mortgage forbearance? Yeah. Um, and I think that's also an open question. Um, and you know, when for a mortgage servicer, when does the filing of the CARES claim really make sense? So I think there's a lot to discuss about this. Yeah, and I know um, that was one of the things we, uh, about this time last year, we're trying to figure out how do you deal with these required forbearance agreements and bankruptcy? And, um, you know, there were different schools of thought. Is it filed as a, you know, a quasi payment change notice when there's a forbearance? Is it um, just a notice of forbearance that's filed on the main docket? And how do you make sure the trustees and the debtors council and the debtor and the servicer are all on the same page. Um, but John, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, it seems like maybe um, it, it, we're a little bit late in the game to be figuring out what to do with these forbearances, but what are your thoughts? Yeah, Chris, I, I mean, on the one hand, I, I understand the, the interest in having a provision like this. I, I think the mortgage industry in particular was concerned about there not being a uniform procedure for dealing with uh, these CARES Act forbearances, but I, I just don't know that this is the right answer. Frankly, my view was that the Rule 3002.1 payment change notice was perfectly fine for dealing with the, at least the forbearance to, for the, the payment change uh, to zero from whatever the mortgage payment was. And I, I think having a supplemental claim that as the statute refers to re referring to the relevant terms of the modification or deferral, uh, I, I guess it seems to me there are two separate things. If the borrower gets a forbearance and maybe it's only just a few months that they're in forbearance, this makes a lot of sense. The servicer can file a claim 
and the debtor can propose under their existing plan to perhaps, or, or with a modification, to pay those three or four months that, that, that were forborn uh, as part of their plan. But the more typical thing for, I think, almost all debtors at this point is that they're probably going to be going from a forbearance into either a loan deferral or a modification, in which case, the, that those deferred amounts are not going to be paid as part of the plan. Um, so it doesn't make sense for them to be a, a claim for them that's filed with the court. You file a claim, the notion of a claim is that it's going to get paid in the plan. Um, so for this to be referencing a modification just seems a little strange to me. I think it can be done. You know, I think the court can can review this. I think it needs to be done in connection probably with a plan modification. It's just it, it just doesn't all fit together as well as I would have liked it to have. So kind of related to that, I guess we can move on to 1001E uh, tied in with this forbearance claim um, process. Uh, the act provides for further modifications to the plan to cover forbearance claims. So what are your thoughts on 1001E, John? Yeah, again, this is another one that I, I think the uh, impetus for it came uh, from the mortgage servicing industry. I think there was concern, and there has been concern even during the HAMP era, uh, where th there was modif loan modifications entered into, and the question was, who's going to notify the court and the trustee and who's going to seek a modification when it needs to be sought. And under the code, of course, it would either be the trustee or the debtor. Um, and 1329 doesn't allow a secure, had not allowed a secured creditor to file a motion to modify. But the concern back then and is for the debtor's counsel who maybe isn't as engaged in the case and um, maybe has not been in contact with their client and uh, the concern that, that the debtor's counsel is not coming forward in, in, in filing that motion to modify. Uh, Chris, I know is you're totally on top of your cases and this would not be an issue, but it's always the debtor's counsel we hear about who doesn't stay in contact with their client um, and isn't there to file the motion to modify. So I think that's where this was coming from. I'm not happy about it. I don't think that the Congress should have should have done this, um, but you know it is what it is. And um, what it does say, though, is if you are a mortgage servicer lender and you want to file a motion to modify under this provision, you need to do it at least within 30 days after a supplemental claim is filed. So you, there is a time deadline for filing this. And as far as debtors counsel, I think they, they you know they have to really be on top of this. If the debtor, if the mortgage lender Honestly, I, I don't think this is going to happen often, but if the mortgage lender is filing a motion to modify and, you know, for example, files one and says that the, there's uh, 12 months of payments that have been forborn and uh, there's no loan deferral that's been entered into or loan modification and files a supplemental claim and the, and the lender, the mortgage servicer files a motion to modify to have those 12 months paid during the plan. Uh, if that's inconsistent with the debtor's intention for the mortgage, which maybe is to get a loan mod or a, or a uh, deferral, you know, debtor's counsel maybe needs to object to that that motion to modify and participate and and really work to try to get the deferral or modification or some other 
alternative uh, workout um, versus maybe what the mortgage lender files. So you, you really have to pay attention to what's going on here. I suspect that there's not a lot of these going to be filed by mortgage lenders, but we shall see. Yeah, I think it also kind of boils down to local practice. Uh, and this is kind of, you know, pre-CARES Act, just dealing with loan modifications for, for servicers. And, um, you know, I know in all of the communications I edit for clients, you know, I add um, provisions in there that, you know, this loan mod may be subject to court or trustee approval. And there are actually a couple of jurisdictions where uh, the courts just want the trustees to sign off on it. They don't want uh, to be involved in the loan mods. But, um, uh, you know, it is something that I think gives servicers, kind of thinking of it from another perspective, it does give them some comfort to see that the court has approved a modification. Now, whether it's a modification related to these forbearance payments or not, it, you know, is another issue. But, uh, and then you look at all the courts that have their own loss mitigation programs, um, and there may be mechanics built into those programs for dealing with loan mods. So again, it's just an area where there's a little bit of uncertainty. We're gonna to have to figure out how to make it work. But I think this one may actually be district by district and in some districts, judge by judge, how do you make sure this all fits together? And I don't know, Carissa, if you've got an opinion on that. Well, what's curious to me is I, at least where I practiced here in, practice here in the Eastern District of Michigan, uh, it is certainly the onus is on debtors counsel to file any sort of modification in the case. The trustee doesn't want to do it. I cannot imagine any local counsel representing mortgage servicers that want to file plan modifications for a debtor's plan. But the important thing is in uh, where I practice, we get paid. Debtors counsel is paid for that. And so uh, yes, I do stay on top of my cases, and this would never be an issue for one of my uh, for one of my files, or I don't imagine for any of my colleagues' files, because our our court um, and the trustee's office and everyone is in agreement that debtors counsel should be paid for the work that they complete, and so it's not an issue. And so I know that that is not the case in many jurisdictions, and so I think it's going to get messy because I think you are going to have other parties that are stepping into to remedy a plan that really should be fixed by debtor's counsel. But if they're not gonna get paid for it, then I understand why it, there may be a reticence for debtor's counsel to uh, fix these complicated situations that arise. Yeah, that's right, that's right. Um, well, so I think it's another provision that we're gonna have to wait and see and probably rely on our practitioners and courts to kind of flesh it out. Um, all right, well, um, moving along, uh, finally the act, provides for a bit of relief uh, with respect to utilities and utility payments. John, can you tell us a little bit about section 1001H? Yeah, this provision amends 366 of the code and says that a, a utility company must maintain or restore service, utility service to a debtor, um, even if the debtor or, or without the debtor necessarily providing typical adequate assurance, which usually is the form of a deposit, um, as long as the debtor pays any debt for service that is incurred during the 20-day period after the petition is filed, and then as long as the debtor maintains payment of services that come due uh, after that 20-day period. So in short, what it says is you, can, you don't have to uh, post a deposit. Um, 
What's a little bit strange about the way this is worded is that I don't think the utilities are going to be sending out bills for that 20 days of post-petition service. So how's the debtor going to know how to pay 20 days worth of service? I think debtor's counsel, if you're, what you probably want to do is send the equivalent of about a month of payment whatever the monthly payment usually is uh, for that utility service, just get that payment sent within 20 days and I think you're, you're good, or at least be sure to make that um, full monthly payment um, you know, it's, it's within the 20 day period. Um, it, it's helpful, I don't know how big of a change it is in some districts because in some districts, the, the utility companies don't even ask for deposits, even though the code says that they can ask for adequate assurance. In consumer cases, a lot of times they don't even ask for deposits. But in the districts that do ask for deposits, this, this should be helpful. Yeah. I tend to think of 366 as more of a business provision than a consumer provision. But uh, Carissa, any parting thoughts on that section? You know, I don't really have much to add to what John said, other than, um, again, I always wonder what the remedy is if um, they don't do it and, and what that all looks like. So, uh, but, but yeah, I, I don't know if it's going to significantly change day-to-day -day practice. Good. Um, so I think we're kind of uh, getting to the point where we'll wrap this up and we had um, talked about giving some predictions and our, and maybe a little bit of a wish list. Um, I think uh, we've covered a lot of our predictions in terms of where we think that courts and practitioners are going to need to really be on their toes uh, to make sure that uh, the act is implemented as the you know as we think um, uh, the federal government intended it to be. Um, what struck me, I guess, my parting thought uh, is you know when I first read through the CARES Act, and now as I read through uh, the Consolidated Appropriations Act. You know, I'm struck by how many times I see the word sunset. You know, uh, I feel like I'm going on a tropical vacation. You know, every, everywhere you're seeing sunsets. Um, but that's not really what we're dealing with here. I mean, uh, how do we deal with the temporary nature of these provisions? And, and uh, you know, John and Carissa, what are your thoughts on, you know, not only that, but any other challenges in implementing the act that we haven't covered? And what would you like to see, um, you know, uh, Congress address in future legislation. Um, Carissa, we can start with you if you'd like. Uh, well, uh, I do think that we have uh, on the horizon some pending bills that will extend the sunset, that, that, that tropical sunset provision mm -hmm. of uh, filing a CARES Act plan modification uh, to, it'll push out a year. So, um, we can take advantage of extending out a chapter 13 plan uh, and file a modification through March 27th of 2022. I think that's on the horizon. I think that is important. The economic suffering from the pandemic has occurred on a rolling basis. And what I mean by that is uh, there are certainly sectors of the economy where uh, during shutdowns, debtors were off of work for three months. And uh, manufacturing, the auto manufacturing is an example of that. There was a very distinct period where they were off of work from March until about early June. And then they picked up back in June and went right back to work. Other sectors of the economy here in Michigan, for example, uh, the casinos, those debtors have been off of work, they've been on work, and then they go off again, depending on the governor's orders. And so um, there, 
the economic losses they've suffered have been have looked very different. Um, other sectors like hospitality has been a delayed reaction. Um, people who work in hotels and that sort of thing, they're really just starting now to really feel the impact of layoffs. And so I think it's important to extend out the provisions to allow more time for those type of delayed, maybe delayed impacts on the economy. Um, and I know that that's been a very important thing for practitioners that we've been hoping for. So we're very happy about that. And um, in that same pending legislation, uh, it would also extend out uh, for, it would, it would apply to cases confirmed um, as of the day of its enactment. So it'll uh, apply to more cases that have been confirmed more recently. Um, and I think that's important as well. So these, the provision has been very helpful in many cases. Uh, I have filed several of them um, and there's several debtors that just needed a couple extra months to be able to finish out their plan and it's really made the difference. So it's a great provision um, and I'm glad to see it's potentially gonna be extended out. John, how about you? Any parting thoughts? Yeah, I'm, I'm excited that I think uh, Congress may extend these sunsets. I think that's a helpful thing. Beyond that, I think uh, getting any type of new legislation will will be a challenge, particularly if the if what happens in the future is more done through the budget reconciliation process. But if if Congress were to uh, look at some provisions that I think would be needed. I think the main thing is that, you know, unlike the business bankruptcy side, um, where where there's already been an uptick in bankruptcies, on the consumer side, it's still stagnant. And that's because of all the other protections that have been out there, the moratorium, the forbearance programs, they've all been great. And they have staved off the the, you know, the, the upsurge in consumer filings, but at some point that is going to happen. And I think it would be really helpful um, if one of if several of the provisions that were in the ABI Commission on Consumer Bankruptcy recommendations, one of them was adjusting the debt limits for Chapter 13. The other one very quickly is having sort of a minimum homestead exemption uh, throughout the country. Uh, there are some states where the homestead exemption is just so low and not been adjusted. Having that uh, would also be a very helpful in a post-COVID period where there is likely to be uh, an increase in consumer bankruptcy filings. Well, Carissa and John, I've really enjoyed this conversation about um, kind of where the CARES Act left off and, and where the act picked up and where we might still need to see some changes um, uh, with respect to consumer bankruptcy. Uh, so I appreciate uh, your time and I will hand it back off to John Harkin to, to take us home. Thank you, Chris, Carissa and John. Uh, this was a very enlightening discussion as there were quite a few important items to unpack. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in to this edition of ABI Podcast. This and more than 200 others can be found in the newsroom at abi.org. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day and stay safe.